Second Chronicles chapter 23. If you haven't turned there already, if you'll join me in Second Chronicles 23. You know, as we look at chapters 23, Lord willing, potentially chapter 24 as well together this evening, I think one of the main things that you'll see kind of comes to the surface as a reminder, and we certainly see this all throughout the Word of God, and it's important truth just to grasp that a lot of life and how life goes and what we experience in life really boils down to one simple thing, and that's really having the right king upon the throne. Uh, having the right king upon the throne of our hearts, and a lot of times the reason why our lives can be maybe in the condition that they're in is very much directly related to the amount of rulership that we allow to God, who is our rightful king, to be ruling in our lives. We have a tendency to be kind of self-governed and to kind of want to rule our own lives, and that never works. And sometimes we then allow our lives to be ruled over by other things, whether it's you know addictions to something or some substance or just feelings or thoughts or some you know life-dominating habit. It's amazing the different things that can rule and reign, unhealthy things reigning. And whether it's in an individual life or amongst a family or amongst a community or a nation, when the wrong king is upon the throne, uh, things are usually messy and unhealthy, and there's all types of problems and grief and regret and difficulties. And when the right king is upon the throne, it's amazing how everything begins to change by simply enthroning the right king. And that's really what we see happening in these chapters as we move into them this evening. We see after a period of time uh, when evil was ruling and reigning, the right king is now put upon the throne and things begin to change for the better within the nation of Israel. Now to understand chapter 23 as we go into it this evening, it's important really that we go back into chapter 22, particularly the last few verses as we're following the southern kingdom of Judah and the reign of those kings. The last king we saw reigning was Amaziah who has now died and in the midst of Amaziah's death, we're told in Second Chronicles 22, verse 10, that when Athaliah, uh, the mother of, excuse me, Ahaziah, uh, I'm saying Amaziah, Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she decided to capitalize on this situation. And it says that the mother of Ahaziah, she saw that her son was dead, the king, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. So basically, Athaliah, this wicked and ungodly woman who was power hungry and wanted to be in control, when she sees that her son, as the reigning king, has died before a successor, which would be one of his sons, would ascend to the throne and be anointed as the next king in Judah, it says that she actually goes through, and heartless as it is to try and swallow, she actually massacres, assassinates all of her grandchildren. All of the male heirs, it says she actually goes through and destroys all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. So, again, where is the natural affection? It's almost very difficult to try and even envision a grandmother not murdering one of her grandchildren, but literally it says murdering all of her grandchildren, murdering all the royal heirs because of this selfish desire, this self-serving attitude to want to be in control, to have her way, to be the next king, in a sense, really not a king, but I guess a queen mother in some ways, to usurp the throne and, and makes this power play and now puts herself in a position where she's able to try and take over the throne and the power in Judah. Uh, now, what's incredibly important about this is as she endeavors to do this and destroy all the royal heirs, not only is she doing this in her own evil actions, but there's something very diabolical and satanic that is going on behind this woman's actions. Uh, in the sense that the line that she is trying to completely eliminate and destroy the male heirs is the line of Judah, and more than that, the line of David's family line, the dynasty of David, through which ultimately the Bible predicted and prophesied that the Messiah would come into the world. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah would come from the family line of David. He'd be one of David's descendants and ultimately would come to be the one who would be the savior for our sin, 
the Lord of glory. And so therefore, it looks in some ways almost like Satan is having his way here. And Satan will always do anything he can. He many times throughout the Old Testament, you'll see, tries to destroy the messianic line to stop the Savior from coming. It never succeeds completely because though the devil may seek to destroy and ravage and ruin the plan of God, uh, he's never ultimately going to foil God's plan. But this is a very strong effort here. Now, verse 11 tells us what happened as God intervenes, just as the devil is trying to motivate this wicked woman, Athaliah, to do this. God intervenes to spare his plan, to spare his purposes. Verse 11, it says, but Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, was sister of Ahaziah. She hid him. The idea is this is one of the ants. She intervened. She spared one of the sons when they were being murdered and hid him away without anyone knowing about it. And so she hid him away from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So he must have been very, very young because by the time he now ascends to the throne, we're going to see in our verses in front of us, he's only seven years old, which means that He's under a year old at this point. He's a very young child and apparently goes to show you how incredibly disconnected this grandmother must have been because she didn't even realize I got all but one. She didn't even recognize uh, where's the baby? Where's he at? How am I missing him? Now, certainly maybe there were a lot of royal heirs and that could, could be an explanation as well. But here, God moves on the heart of this godly woman, Jehoshabeth, and her godly husband, who was Jehoiada the priest at this time. And this godly husband and wife intervene, and they spare not only the life of a child, which is wonderful in and of itself, that they would say, you know what, we don't want to see this child put to death. We will intervene and spare the life of this child. That's not only a wonderful thing just to spare one life, because every life matters to God. And is very valuable to God. But more than that, they did not even perhaps recognize, and maybe they did, we're not going to be certain, uh, that they were more than that. They were sparing the very plan of all eternity, sparing one of the family descendants of David who would bring forth the Messiah into the world. So they take this young child, they hide him away in the house of God for six years where he's just kind of kept in hiding, they're raising him, taking care of him in secrecy. And it says, while Athalia reigned over the land. And as we talked about last time, in the midst of this, imagine, so for a six-year period, to pretty much everyone else in Judah, maybe other than these two individuals, it seems, it appears that God's plan has failed. It appears the word of God is filled because God said that he would always leave a descendant upon David's family line upon the throne. And it looks for all intensive purposes as if somehow God's word is not going to come to pass. God's word has failed. Something has gone horribly wrong. And there is no way possible God's plan or God's purpose can come to pass. And it must have been very dark and discouraging and somewhat confusing for many, many people for a six year long period feeling like Everything has gone horribly wrong and what was supposed to happen is never going to come to pass now. And God left that kind of waiting pattern there for six years, no doubt testing the faith of people, testing the faith because year after year, God, it seems your plan has failed. God, it seems your word is not coming to pass. And for six long years, let's say six days, six weeks or six months, six years, Everybody is looking and there is no physical, visible evidence of the plan of God being fulfilled at this point as there is seemingly no descendant from that family line anymore. And it looked as if God's purpose had failed for a period of time. Yet despite how it looked, God still had everything under control. And God had a plan in the works and it was just a matter of the right timetable and the way that God was going to work according to his purposes and not necessarily according to theirs. You know, I think we always need to 
remember this for our own lives because whether it is some promise in God's word, some written promise that God will provide all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus and then sometimes we go through situations financially and we're thinking, Lord, I don't know. I mean, just, uh, you know, I've tried to honor you, Lord, and do what's right and honor you with my resources and Lord, you said you'd provide for all of my needs but it it doesn't seem like that that's going to happen. And maybe for a season of time, our faith is tested And it seems like God's word's not going to come to fruition or take any other promise in scripture. And sometimes it looks like in the circumstances that God's word's not going to come to pass. It's not going to be fulfilled. Or maybe it's just some promise God's given to us personally. And sometimes our faith is tried. It's tested. And the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. This is the testing of faith. For six years, there was no evidence that God was going to do this. There was no indication, but yet God was at work and his word had not failed. And we need to remember what God says, God does. God keeps his word. And it doesn't matter how things look circumstantially or how bad it can be or how strong the diabolical evil efforts of the devil may be to try and ruin something. The devil is never ultimately going to succeed over God and his purposes. And we need to take that to heart for our own lives and remembering the truths of God's word that they will be fulfilled. His promises will come to pass. So imagine this six years, dark, discouraging, this wicked woman is reigning, Athaliah, who's murdered her grandchildren and has all these evil intentions. And the people must have been so disheartened and just feeling utterly discouraged. But then chapter 23 God now decides the time has come. He makes all things beautiful in his time to shine forth the light and to turn the tables and to put the right king on the throne and to dethrone evil from what its influence had been. It says, and in the seventh year, Jehoiada, that is the priest who had been monitoring and caring for this child with his wife in the house of God, Jehoiada the priest strengthened himself, got himself ready, and then he made a covenant That is an agreement, a commitment to do this together with the captains of the hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, the son of Johanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, and Masaiah, the son of Adaiah, and Elisaphat, the son of Zikri. And they went throughout all, it says, Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel and they came to Jerusalem. So again, the accounts and kings tell us they, that Jehoiada rallies together some of the leaders and says, look, you need to gather together the elders, the Levites, the spiritual leaders that bring together these people because there is something that needs to be revealed, if you would, something that needs to be addressed. There is an error still available to the throne and no one had known about this so they're now gathering together verse 3 says all the assembly came together and made a covenant with the king in the house of god and he jehoiada said to them verse 3 behold the king's son shall reign as the lord notice has said of the sons of david So he reminds them of the word of God and he says, look, God's word said that one of David's sons would sit upon the throne and God's word has not failed. It looked like God's word had failed. It felt like for six years God's word had failed. But he says the word of God stands and God is going to fulfill his word and now is the time. Now is the time. And he says, so make a covenant with me. There is a descendant. There is an heir for the throne. God is going to bring about the reigning of a son of David upon his throne. And he says, therefore, verse four, this is what you shall do. We're going to reveal this heir and coronate him as the king, Jehoiada saying. So this is what you shall do. This is how we're going to go about it, he says. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and the Levite shall be keeping watch over the doors, watching, you know, kind of posting guard. One third shall be at the king's house and one third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. So he basically encourages them to go about their regular duties so nothing looks suspicious, so they don't draw attention, that the people could gather regularly at the house of God on the typical times that they would. He says, verse 6, But let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests 
and those who the Levites who serve. They may go in, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the watch of the Lord. And the Levites, verse 7, I like this, the Levites shall surround the king on all sides. Again, this is a precious man at this point. <laughs> he is the heir, is a young seven-year-old kid who's going to be the next ruler, uh, and they can't make a mistake here. His safety is absolutely paramount, right? Because God's hand is upon him. He's the Lord's anointed, and so therefore they're taking very seriously his protection. They, they, they see how the uh, devil in his diabolical efforts has already destroyed many of the other heirs, and so they realize, look, we are not letting the devil destroy this one. We are not letting the devil intervene in this wicked woman, Athaliah, uh, who has wicked intentions, discover our plan and just send in a, a group of guards or soldiers and just put him to death. So they're taking very seriously the safety issue of this young man who the hand of the Lord is upon. It says, the Levite shall surround him on all sides. That is like posting a bodyguard. Every man, notice, with his weapons in his hand. And whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. Again, talk about that's an intense secret service there. If you get within a, a few feet, uh, he says, then they are to lose their life. You, he says, verse 7, here was their commission. You are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. In other words, you post guard and stay with him when he comes in, when he goes out. I always want a group surrounding him to keep him safe. You know, in some ways, I, I, this is, you know... Uh, somewhat relevant just recently when I was guest speaking at another uh, Calvary Chapel and didn't even realize it at first when I, I got there and I, sh I showed up at the, the property and it's a larger Calvary Chapel obviously so they take security just a little bit more intentional maybe even that we do here and I, I kind of noticed but no one ever said anything to me that there was a very large man very large man um, I'm a small man, so he was all the more clear. I mean, tall and just very big. And I noticed he was like, I felt like he was like shadowing me, like following me around. I'm over talking to this person. And I kept feeling like I was like, kept picking him up in my rear view mirror. And I'm, I'm just, you know, like, I'm thinking, what, what's up with this guy? Does he want to talk or something? And, and he, but he wasn't saying anything. And I'd notice he'd be like four, four foot behind me. Then I'd move somewhere else. I'd go to this, and this is prior to the service. And I'm like, everywhere I go in the sanctuary, he just like keeps follow me around and so then I taught and then after the service there was a gal that was coming forward had a bag in her hand and she walked up to me and um, came forward and said I'm, I'm homeless you know is there anything that the church can do to help me and so on and so forth and I said look I'm, I'm not the you know pastor here or one of the staff members I'm just guest speaking this evening so you know why don't you let me maybe you know find one of them and you can talk to them and they could you know maybe guide you forward I'm from out of town or whatever um, and as she's coming towards me, I'm also noticing, lo and behold, here comes the big man behind her again. And, and he's walking. I'm thinking, maybe this is her husband or something. Or yeah. So he walked, as soon as she walks up to me, as soon as she walks away, he says, look, I just want you to know I checked her bag. I vetted her. I knew who she was before she came up. And, and then all of a sudden it started clicking to me like, this is my dude. Like, this is my assigned bodyguard here. And I realized, in essence, that's what was going on is basically the pastor was away and probably that's what this large man or other large men do on a typical Sunday or Wednesday is they basically just shadow the pastor the whole time. And so whether it's somebody coming up to talk to him or wherever he's at in the building, uh, he's within a few feet so that should you have any ill intention, it'd be a matter of a few seconds and you wouldn't get very far. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, it was a little bit awkward and weird, but it, I was like, that was actually kind of nice. You know, it was, it was kind of a, a nice thing to recognize there. You know, it's just, it was, and, and this to me almost reminds me of that. You know, you shall be with the king where he comes, when he goes in, when he goes out, just stay with him. Again, this was the one error. He was very precious and valuable, and uh, they were assigned to him almost to kind of keep him safe and protect him because they knew the value uh, that he meant to the people of God. So verse 8 says, The Levites and all Judah did according to all Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each man took his men 
who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were off duty on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the divisions. He kept them around for uh, more individuals to be available for this coronation that would happen rather quickly and abruptly. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains of the hundreds the spears, the large and small shields, which had belonged to David that were in the temple of God. So interesting, these uh, instruments of war, these spoils that David had taken from when he had succeeded in battles, they now take these things, interestingly enough, to now actually protect his descendant, who was that last remaining person who could continue the dynasty of David to be upon the throne. And I think, what an amazing thing. Here's David, years and years prior, fighting battles and having victories, and he acquires these you know, shields and these weapons, and he had absolutely no idea the value that those things would have years and years down the road to benefit and bless his family way later on. And that they would actually be what's used to help keep him safe and to shield him. And just, you know, reminds me in some ways, you know, folks, the things that we do, the right choices we make, the times when we fight to do what's right in battles, and we seek to do what is good and right, and we stick it out despite how difficult it is. Look, that's not just about your success in the momentary battle. You have no idea. The fact that you choose to stand strong and do what's right and be victorious in the battles that the Lord brings into your life to do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, the impact that that may have upon your children, your grandchildren, the things that you lay up to make their life better because of the good things that you do presently right now. So often the good things that we do, the the far-reaching impact is so much further than we realize. And here they actually take these shields from King David from years and years ago that were there in the temple of God. And verse 10 says, they set all the people, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar, all around the king. And they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. So they literally take the, the, the crown itself. They place it upon this little seven-year-old boy's head. And they gave him the testimony that is probably a, a copy of the law of the Lord. And they made him king. They, they coronated him right there in the house of God in the courts of the Lord. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. So it's revealed there is still a successor in David's line and they now coronate and recognize as their new king, this seven-year-old boy, as the next king of Judah. Now when Athaliah, verse 12, heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. That's probably one of the only times she went to the temple of the Lord because she felt like she was losing power here in her evil actions. She runs to the temple of the Lord, and when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the leaders and the trumpeters who were by the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, also all the singers with the musical instruments and those who led in praise. So they're having this great celebration, you know, that now they're putting the right king back upon the throne. There's all this joy and worship and excitement except for old Athaliah, because it says when she saw it, notice she tore her clothes as an act of remorse and said, treason, treason. Now, boy, isn't that quite interesting coming from her lips? Treason, treason. It was amazing how, you know, her murdering all of her grandsons and usurping power over the nation was somehow acceptable, but how dare they actually do what's good and right and actually rightful, and she calls what's good evil, even as the word of God tells us will happen. There'll be a day when people call, you know, evil good and good evil. And, and here, treason, this is treason. How dare you do what God's word says? That's horrible. <laughs> Much like the culture we live in. It's amazing how people look at those of us who want to love Jesus and live according to the word of God and do what's healthy and good and right and moral according to God's design. And we're being looked at now as the, as the ones who are, you know, betrayers of the common good of humanity. We're committing treason against the human race because of our, you know, unwillingness to accept certain lifestyles or take things outside of the boundaries of the word of God, which is what's best for a people and families and individuals. And, and, and we're accused. Treason, treason. Those, those, they're the ones who are the problems in the culture. And here she is because she now sees this new king. She's all up in arms, treason, treason. Well, Jehoiada the priest, recognizing it was time to be done with her, brought, it says, 
brought out the captains of the hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, take her outside under guard. They took her into protective custody and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. He didn't want bloodshed to happen there in God's house. So they seized her and she went by the way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house and there they killed her. You know, so here's this rebellious woman and they drag her out. Very interesting of all places, you know, this woman, they just drag her out to this place of the horse gate and they, they put her to death as well as all those who are following her because this is a complete eradication of all of the evil influence that was infecting and destroying the nation at this time. So they're purging her and purging the people who are following her ways from what they were doing. And again, it says they put her to death and whoever followed her by slaying them with the sword. And of course, you know, we can't help but to take into consideration there just even some of the symbolic reminder of how they eliminated evil by slaying those who were evil with the sword. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that God's word, the scriptures, are the sword of the spirit. That this is God's spiritual sword. And you know what? One of the best ways to eliminate evil from our lives is by the sword of the Spirit. One of the best ways to eradicate evil influences is by using faithfully the sword of the Spirit, by speaking the Word of God and letting the sword of God's Spirit be the piercing truth and the light and the revelation that purges evil out of our lives that cuts away and eradicates evil from the culture because the truth of God's word can come in and it can cut away wrong ideas and evil philosophies and wrong beliefs to let people see the truth and let people understand what is right and what should be reigning and what should be dethroned even in a culture. So verse 16 says, Jehoiada then made a covenant between himself and the people that the king that day, that they should be the Lord's people. And I like that, Jehoiada the priest, great spiritual leader. He says to the people, look, let's make a covenant this day. We're putting the right king back on the throne. We're eliminating what has been evil and ruling over our lives. And he says, let's make a covenant, a commitment that we should belong to the Lord. Like Joshua said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And all the people, verse 17, it says, went down to the temple of Baal and they tore it down broken pieces, its altars and its images, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And again, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 13 from around verses 6 through 10, uh, this is not them, in a sense, overly with great intensity and zeal, just murdering people unnecessarily. Deuteronomy 13 said that when people were false prophets and false teachers and seducing people spiritually to follow other gods like Baal and Molech, that it was actually a capital offense in the nation of Israel and that they were to be put to death because they would infect and influence in destructive ways the people of God to turn away from him. So they're basically just, again, they're adhering to the word of God here as they carry this out according to Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 13. Also, Jehoiada, verse 18, appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing, with singing, as it is established by David. So again, notice as things are being in a sense, reconciled as wrong is being removed, as they're seeking to right the ship in the nation, right things spiritually. Notice what they do again. They get back to being serious about observing, says the written word of God. He begins to appoint spiritual leaders properly again, and they begin to offer burnt offerings in the house of the Lord, which had not been taking place under Athaliah, who basically neglected, we'll see, and destroyed the, the house of the Lord for the six years she was in charge. And now he says, look, we need to reinstitute worship of God, the burnt offerings, and do what is written in the law of Moses. And as they obeyed the word of God, it brought joy into the lives of the people. There wasn't grief and misery. As people started obeying the word, it says they were rejoicing, they were singing. And he set gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one who was in any way unclean should enter. So again, he, he posts guards. That's what these gatekeepers were. Not just like ushers. 
They were gatekeepers. The idea they were individuals who, in a sense, were a divine security staff so that nothing unclean or no one unclean or unhealthy could come in and defile God's people and defile God's work. So these gatekeepers had this, in a sense, security role to make sure that the things of God were not damaged in any way by those who had unhealthy and evil agendas. In verse 20, then he took the captains of the hundreds, the nobles and governors of the people and all the people of the land and brought the king down from the house of the Lord and they went through the upper gate to the king's house and they notice, verse 20, set the king on the throne of the kingdom. Boy, that's a great statement. They set the king on the throne of the kingdom and watch what happens as a result, verse 21. So all the people of the land rejoiced. The city was quiet for they had slain Athaliah with the sword. Notice, when the wrong king was dethroned, when that which was ruling over the people was removed, that was wrong, and the rightful king was upon the throne, do you see the result? When the rightful king was on the throne ruling over the people's lives, the result was, it says, the people experienced joy and peace and quiet. Joy and peace and quiet. You know, and the same is true in our personal lives. To the degree that we allow the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, to rule and reign in our lives, we will experience a greater degree of joy rather than misery and being miserable. And we also will experience some peace and quiet. Because it's amazing how when the rightful King is ruling in your life, doesn't mean your life is going to be absent from challenges, but what it does mean is that you can have some peace and quiet internally because you're at rest within. You're not all restless and miserable. And, and there's something very wonderful about when Jesus is ruling and reigning in certain ways. You know, this picture is no doubt as well what's going to ultimately happen when Jesus returns at a second coming and the rightful king, Jesus, comes to this earth and sets up his throne in Jerusalem. And for a thousand years in the kingdom age, he rules and reigns rightfully over this earth that belongs to him as the rightful king. There will be great joy in all the earth. There will be peace and quiet as the righteous king is reigning and evil has been dealt with and dethroned. Well, verse 1 of chapter 24 says, Joash, again, notice, was seven years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. So four decades, this young man ends up reigning. But he comes to the throne, how old at seven years old? Can you imagine a seven-year-old? Coming to the throne, I mean, what's his first edict? Lucky charms for everyone. I mean, just what, seven years old, imagine a seven-year-old. Certainly, he needed the you know, guidance and direction and probably had counselors and we'll see Jehoiada around him giving him direction until he could come to maturity. But what an incredible responsibility at seven years old. This young seven-year-old taking over the throne and rulership and then growing into that. Man, it's amazing what God's willing to entrust to young people. I mean, it's sh shocking there. Seven years old, God lets him have the throne uh, and just puts around him good people to help him. And God didn't despise his youthfulness because he was the right guy. He needed to be on the throne, though he was only seven at the time. So he reigned for 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash, it says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. So he was a godly king. And notice the sad epitaph, the end of verse 2. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit indicates to us, and we'll see the end of the chapter this, all the days of Jehoiada the priest. In other words, Jehoiada the priest was a very godly influence. This older man who was kind of his uncle, really, who was his spiritual father, if you would, who was raising him in the ways of the Lord, his mentor, the one who guided him and cultivated him. He was his counselor and had strong influence upon him. As long as he had that godly influence in his life, he did good. He did well and he made good decisions. But sadly, we're going to see that he also was somebody who, when he did not have that godly influence still in his life, that he never learned to stand on his own two feet personally. And look, that's never good, folks. It's wonderful to have somebody who's a good influence, a godly mentor, someone who really helps you stay on track spiritually. But the reality is this, is human beings are frail, they're temporal, and we never know when they're going to be taken out of our lives. And we can't base 
our willingness to obey the word of God and do what's right spiritually upon the support system of another person. It can help us, but ultimately we must realize that even if they're not still there, I will still obey the word of God. I will still do what's right in the sight of the Lord because what they taught me is what I now choose to walk out and carry out myself. And so kind of a, an interesting insight here, and sometimes this can happen. You know, somebody does really well, they do what's right in the sight of the Lord until their pastor's removed or until some mentor's removed, and then all of a sudden they start, they start going south. We want to be careful of that and learn how to stand and be rooted ourselves, and just take influence but walk out what we learn and not be overly dependent upon someone else to have to make good and right decisions. So Jehoiada says also took wise for him and he had sons and daughters and it happened after this that Joash, and again, we don't know how old he is. Maybe at this point he's late teens, early 20s. At some point it says Joash the king set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. Now we'll see the reason is Athaliah who had no regard for God or the things of God. She just let the temple go into disrepair. She just abused it. She ransacked it. So the temple is just in ruins. It's in rubbish. And here Joash, who has a heart for the Lord, demonstrates it by having a heart for the house of the Lord. And he realizes the strength of a nation and the strength of the people is rooted in their worship lives. And he realizes, look, God's house has been neglected. And we have been, in a sense, ignoring the importance and the value of our worship lives in God's house. So it says he purposes or sets his heart upon repairing the house of the Lord. I like that. Hey, there are things that that may need to be repaired spiritually in the lives of God's people that may need some attention within the church body. And he says, I want to repair the house of the Lord. I want to do this as an action as the king of Israel because of his love for God. So verse 5 tells us how he went about it. It says, he gathered the priests and the Levites and he said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of the Lord your God from year to year and see that you do it quickly. Again, he didn't want to see neglect carry on. He says, look, this is important. I want to act upon it quickly. God's put it upon my heart. And when God puts something upon your heart, delay is never good. So he says, see that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. They were negligent for some reason. We're not told, but something for some reason, they either, you know, maybe they felt uncomfortable with doing it. Maybe it was something that they didn't agree with. I mean, we can only speculate, but for some reason, the Levites didn't feel comfortable with the king's edict to go out and to begin to receive an offering from the Lord's people. So they're not doing it. They're kind of delaying and dragging their feet. So the king, verse 6, called Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection? According, he says, to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness. So he references uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 35, where even in those days with Moses, when they were constructing a tabernacle, Moses put out an invitation. It wasn't an obligation. It was more of an invitation that, look, we're going to build the tabernacle of the Lord, his house of worship, and whoever has a heart to want to come and to offer and participate to support in some way, again, to dedicate those resources to be able to bring to pass God's work. And he says, why is no one doing this? Why is there this refraining of going out to do this? In verse 7, the commentary, as I mentioned earlier, the reason the temple is in disrepair for the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, the Bible calls her, had broken into the house of God. And they had presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. They had basically just trashed and ransacked the temple of God in great disrespect. So it needed attention. So verse 8, interesting. Since the Levites did not go out and receive this collection and offer this opportunity, the king in flexibility kind of shifts gears and he says, okay, if that didn't work, then let's take a different approach. So it says, verse 8, at the king's command... They made a chest that is like a wooden box. They set it at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout all of Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection 
that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. He says, look, even as you dedicated financial resources to building the tabernacle, this is something God wants done too. God wants his house restored. He wants the temple repaired so we can begin to worship there as we should once again. The building needed attention in that situation. Verse 10, then all the leaders and the people, it says, rejoiced and brought their contributions and put them into the chest until all had given. And so it was at that time, verse 11, when the chest was brought to the king's official by the hand of the Levites, when they saw that there was much money, that the king, the scribe, and the chief the high priest's officer came and they emptied the chest, took it, and then returned it back to its place. And this they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. So this box is out there at the gate and the people are coming and they're putting in their donations there as they felt inclined to do such. And then as the box would get filled up, they would go in, they would empty it into the treasury of the Lord. They'd bring the box back out there. And through this process, it says that day by day they did this. And in the midst of this, the collection, they gathered much abundance. Great amount of resources came in. But take notice in verse 10 there, the description of how the giving was happening. Verse 10 says, all the leaders, but then it says, and all the people rejoiced as they brought their contributions and they put them into the chest until all had given. Notice everybody participated in the financial giving. It says all were contributing. All were giving. It doesn't say they were all giving the same amount. The Bible tells us that we are all to give to some degree, but we're to give as we purpose in our heart according to how we prosper in proportion to what we are able to do. But we are all to some degree to share, even from a New Testament perspective, but we're never to do it in a sense where it's a grudging obligation. You see what it says there? It says the people came and they rejoiced. They gave with joy and a sense of celebration. Hey, this is what we want to give. This is what we can give. This is what we're able to do for the Lord and for his work. And they brought their resources. And through this, again, uh, God doesn't need to raise funds. There's, that's not what's going on here. It's just the people as an act of worship saying we want to participate. We worship at the house of God. It takes resources to operate the house of God and its ministries. And so they come with joy. It's not this you know, awkward thing where they're being pressured to give. They're just freely giving and adequate resources are able to be supplied. And verse 12 says, The king and Jehoiada then gave those resources to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord. They hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord, and also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. So they're now repairing and restoring. They're hiring out the different contractors, compensating them adequately for the work that they're doing to make repairs on God's temple, the physical house of the Lord. So the workmen labored and the work was completed by them and they restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. I like that. They restored the house of God to its original condition and they reinforced it. You know, sometimes, whether it's God's house in the sense of spiritually, the church, the family of God, or whether it's God's house in the sense of the individual believer, the Bible says that all of our lives, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit now, where we become the house of God and God's presence dwells within us. Sometimes, honestly, the house of the Lord kind of, it gets in disrepair. It gets neglected. And some things need some restoration, some things need to be repaired and reinforced. Maybe it's our personal devotional life needs a little repair work. Maybe we need to restore back some prayer time and some Bible reading or some church attendance. Then we've in some ways neglected our dedication and the condition of our house spiritually or the church collectively needs a little bit of attention. And so sometimes we have to be willing, like these workmen here, to labor at doing what we can to restore back to God's house what's been neglected and to reinforce the good things that are important regarding the spiritual life and the worship among God's people. And when they had finished, verse 14, it says, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and they made from it then articles for the house of the Lord, for serving and offering 
spoons and vessels of gold and silver. All these things certainly probably got lost when Athaliah ransacked the temple for Baal's purposes. They offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada, so they reinstitute the worship life. But Jehoiada grew old, Jehoiada the priest, full of days and died at 130 years old when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. So we got an honorable burial. Here's a common man, just a priest, but he gets buried together with the tombs of the kings because he had such a godly influence upon the nation. He was a treasured man. Verse 17, now this indicates what we read back in verse 2, that Joash did good in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest being present in his life as an influencer. But look what happens. Now Jehoiada the priest, his godly mentor, his spiritual father, his spiritual leader has now died. And verse 17 shows you how easily he was influenced. It says, now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and they bowed down to the king. They were kind of trying to flatter him, to persuade him. And the king listened to them. Now the emphasis there is he listened to them instead of listening to the Lord. Never good to just please people or to want the attention or the admiration of people to listen to people. We need to listen to the Lord. And so these men come with their own agenda. They're bowing down. Oh, king, you're... And it says he listened to them. Verse 18, therefore, look what happened. They left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and they served wooden images and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of the trespass. They went back into idolatry. <laughs> Can you believe this? This is Joash, the seven-year-old who was spared by God. And now how quickly after Jehoiada dies, he gravitates right back into leading the people as the king now back into idolatry and turning from the Lord. Verse 19, look at the faithfulness of God. He always is so persistent yet. I have that circle there in verse 19 at all. Yet. I mean, you would think God would be like, are you kidding me? You? after all I did for you, would have the audacity to turn away from me and turn my people away? Yet, God's merciful. He always keeps trying. Yet, he sent prophets to them, those who speak the word of God, to bring them back to the Lord. And that's always what a true spokesman for the Lord should do, to want to bring people back to the Lord. Not destroy them, belittle them, make them feel horrible for not walking with the Lord to speak the truth and love, to bring people back to the Lord. These prophets came to try and bring the people back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. That's always sad when people hear the word of God, but choose to exercise free will not to listen. So verse 20 says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of, notice who this man is, the son of Jehoiada the priest. So this is now the son of godly Jehoiada the priest, in a sense, the, the stepfather, the godly mentor that had been in Joash's life, kind of almost like a stepbrother, if you would, Zechariah, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, comes and he says, thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. Take notice of what his statement is. As he identifies the fact that he had forsaken and turned away of the Lord, he says to them, verse 20, his message, why do you transgress God's word so that you cannot prosper? He says, listen, if you, tra and again, transgression is a deliberate act of rebellion. That's what transgression speaks of, deliberate rebellion. I clearly know don't touch the wet paint, but I choose to do it anyway. The line's clearly drawn in his hand. Do not step over that line. And it wasn't, I didn't see the line. It was an accident. It was a slip up. It's a deliberate, willful act of rebellion and disobedience. And he says, why do you transgress the clear word of God so that you cannot prosper? Do you, do you see the mercy in that? He's saying, look, you're rebelling against God's word. And he says, you cannot prosper if you disobey God's word. Would to God that that would be stamped over my heart and mind and would be something that would become clear to so many people in humanity that when we disobey and rebel against God's word, 
It's not that we might not prosper. We cannot prosper. God will never allow us to prosper in disobeying him. It may look or feel like we're prospering temporarily or even materially or for a short period, but but it never ultimately works. Again, the Bible says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the covenant. He resists. He works in opposition. And when someone resists the word of God, what they're basically doing is choosing to have God work in opposition to them and they will not prosper. Look, can I encourage you this evening? If you are currently transgressing and resisting and disobeying the word of God or contemplating it, it's never going to work. It's, you'll never prosper. You will constantly fail and have regrets and misery and problems. That's all that will happen. But if you choose to obey the word of God, in time God will honor that and bless that and good fruit will come and God will prosper you in his ways by doing the exact opposite. So the prophet comes and he says, look, what are you doing? This is never going to prosper, disobeying God. But verse 21, look what happens. So they conspired against him, that's the prophet, at the command of the king, that's Joash, and they stoned him with stones in the court of the Lord. That's how you silence a voice you don't want to hear. You eliminate him, cut him off. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. What a sad ending to, to what's described there. You know, at the end of the chapter, it describes how they then are defeated militarily and Joash ends up losing his life after kind of a very poor ending to a great start. But, I mean, think about again what takes place. Joash says, you know what? I don't like what that prophet of God is saying. Just kill him and stone him to death right there in the court of the Lord. It says, Joash did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son, Zechariah the prophet. And he died saying, the Lord look upon it and the Lord's, the, the Lord's going to deal with you, Joash, for what you've done. I mean, contemplate what's going on here. Joash basically just murdered his spiritual mentor's son for speaking the truth to him in the very same place where he was spared for all those years and then actually coronated to be the king of Israel, right there in the house of the Lord. And in the same place, an utter hard-heartedness and disregard, he actually murders the voice of a prophet just because he's speaking truth into his lives. And boy, what an amazing testament to how easily our heart can go from here to there. Don't ever, 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 did I say that yet? Think that you don't have the potential to get real off track, to go way off course. I mean, the, the, the spectrum that this young man went from, he doesn't remember the kindness of the Lord. He, certainly he should have remembered, God was so kind and gracious to me, I want to serve God forever. But yet at a later point in his life, turns completely the opposite direction, becomes completely cold-hearted. That's why Proverbs 4 says to us, folks, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. That is our responsibility. You gotta keep your own heart condition diligently because the issues of everything in life flow from here. And the best way to keep that heart condition right is to keep Jesus ruling on the throne. Constantly dethrone yourself, dethrone everything else and continue to enthrone the Lord. That's the best way to keep yourself in a right condition. Let's stand.